I guess I was like very ambitious and I was kind of looking for opportunities and I saw this as something that was like within my grasp. And if it didn't work out, like, I, I guess it didn't matter in, in a lot of senses. Like I already had a job. I was just taking holiday leave and I went to New York, went to DC and just kind of stayed in New York for a week and then like went back to work. So it could, like, if nothing had happened from it, now I could just like glaze it over as a holiday that I took. Vanessa from BrainCraft is one of the most experienced faces in YouTube science education, with media experience that precedes even YouTube itself. How did she went from doing science education while traveling through Australia to video creation? I am Alex, and this is Genesis. When you meet someone new, when inevitably the conversation goes to work and people ask you, what's your job? What do you work on? What's your go-to answer? Oh my God, I could do... 10 different things depending on the room that I'm in. And I will say that um, part of possibly my culture, but also my personality is that I never want to stand out from the pack, right? So I always tend to go with the answer that is the least impressive, if that makes sense, where people will ask me what I do and I'm like, oh, I'm a, I'm a video producer or I'm a writer or I just kind of give some very broad thing that doesn't seem that special in of itself. So I still haven't answered your question. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of does. Okay. I would never call myself a YouTuber because I've never made a living off YouTube, actually, which is something that I think is different from me compared to you and maybe some other people that you speak to on this podcast. So I have always worked for different clients and things like that. So I would be more likely to say that I run a small business or I'm a video producer or I'm a science reporter, depending on what room I'm in or who's asking me. But that gives you, a, a, I imagine, a lot of interesting perspective. So let's go all the way to the beginning. Where were you born? I was born in a hospital in the south of Sydney, the southern suburbs of Sydney. I don't know why I found it necessary to say I was born in a hospital compared <laughs> to like a home birth or some other option that my mother may have chosen for herself. In a wooden shed in the woods. Yeah, no. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, but I just I just wanted you to, to imagine it. It was a very large kind of Soviet-style concrete building. <laughs> How early in your childhood did you started having an interest for science or STEM in general? Yeah, so I would say that my mum was quite influential in fostering curiosity and fostering a love of STEM for me. And she always pointed out constellations to me, one in particular, um, Orion's belt, which is in the constellation Orion, the warrior. So she did that. We used to do a lot of kind of experiments at home where we would make our own Play-Doh or plasticine and we would make our own soap and things like that. And as I have gotten older and have gotten to know my mum as an adult, I think there's a really interesting parenting lesson in there where she actually didn't know more than one constellation. Like she doesn't know how to find more than Orion in the night sky. And it's not like she has a whole lot of home chemistry experiments up her sleeve. Like it was a very small number of things that she introduced me to that I really took to and used as inspiration. So I think that, you know, you don't need to have a university 
education in order to foster a love of science in your kid. Like you don't need to be a good artist to foster a love of art in your kid. You know, I think that introducing kids to all different bits and pieces can lead to them to follow their interests wherever they may lie. That's beautiful. Did this early cultivation of your interests reflect in, in school? Were you the, the science-y kid at school? It's really interesting because I I ebbed and flowed over the course of my education, actually depending on the teachers that I had. So I have always been a people person and I have been quite social and encouraged by people and I've always wanted to like please people in different relationships as in having good getting good marks at school and having good relationships with my teachers and things like that. So when I was in primary school in Australia, which goes to year six, and then when I started high school, I was really into science up until I was about 14 years old when I was in year eight. I remember we had this science club, which was after school, where we used to do things like dissecting frogs and more advanced like chemical reaction things. And we went on excursions to science museums and things like that. And in my whole school, there were like 20 kids who were part of this science club club, but it only went until you were 15. So I kind of did that. But then um, I had some pretty discouraging teachers when I was in what you would consider middle school in the US. So I actually gravitated towards the humanities, towards English and history and other subjects because I got along better with the teachers and I was getting better marks at the time in those different subjects. And then it was when I went to university that I kind of came back to the sciences. Uh, what did you major on? So in my undergraduate degree, I majored in psychology. I started actually studying zoology because I loved animals. And throughout the process of that, I realized that humans were actually way stranger than any other animals. So I kind of came back to studying the brain and behavior because that fascinated me far more than other mammals or insects or anything like that. And then I, a bit later down the track, did a master's degree in science communication where I studied media and communication. If you were interested in humanities for a while late in your like high school education, what motivated you to then go and try to major in zoology? So I chose the university that I did, which was the University of New South Wales in Sydney, because it enabled me to study zoology and creative writing in the same mm. degree program. Um, normally in Australia, the degrees are quite focused and they're very applied. So um, I find the system in America so funny where people just like go to college and just kind of figure out what they want to do along the way. Um, it takes a little bit longer than it does to get a degree in Australia, maybe six to 12 months. But when you enroll in university in Australia, like you have to pick your major before you can enroll in a program and all the majors are very specialized. So when you're 17, basically, you're like, oh, I want to major in creative writing or zoology or something like that. And that is how you enroll. Um, so you can't normally take humanities subjects when you study a science degree. So I was really attracted to the University of New South Wales because it enabled me to mix those loves, I suppose. And when I was doing it, I was always really interested in English. But then when I got to university, it seemed really novel 
to me in a way, like to be watching films and reading books and writing analyses and things like that. I was just like, how am I going to use this in the real world? And the answer to that is so many ways, like getting degrees in those areas is you know, super important and leads to a lot of like analytical skills and critical thinking skills that you can use in a variety of different jobs. But at the time, I just like couldn't imagine what I could do for work that could come from like watching a Charlie Chaplin film and writing a paper about it. So that was why I really like science because it had this practical element to it where you could go and I could, you know, do lab work and that was actually a job that I could get doing lab work. So it just seemed to be training me for more of a real world application. That makes a lot of sense. Before asking about your master's, I wonder, as a, as a consumer, at this point, were you aware of YouTube? Were you, did you know what it was? Were you consuming <laughs> stuff in YouTube? Um, YouTube didn't exist when I was an undergraduate at university. I'm that old, Alex. I'm that ancient and wrinkly that it wasn't even a thing. <laughs> I, I'm a little bit confused for the timing here because you are not much older than I am. So something here is like on the math <laughs> method. Um, I mean, maybe, maybe not. I, I started university in 2004. So YouTube first launched in 2005, to my knowledge. But I think something that I, I don't know what it's like in Spain, but in Australia at that time, things that were happening in the US technology-wise took a little bit of time to trickle down into society. And I definitely wasn't on the cutting edge of technology. Like I know that, you know, the first iPhone was launched in 2007, but I don't think I got an iPhone until 2010. Um, I know that when I was finishing university in 2007, some of my friends had Facebook, but I didn't get Facebook until the year after that. So you kind of have this period where Facebook started on the East Coast of the US in 2004, and then it didn't really saturate the Australian university student market until like 2007. You know what is actually the, the explanation for that time there that I, that I wasn't able to completely calculate mm -hmm. is that those four years were tremendously transformative because you are, if I'm not mistaken, about three or four years older than I am. Mm -hmm. But those were like the three or four years when like Facebook happened and YouTube yeah. happened and basically the internet and and people's approach to the internet change mm -hmm. overnight. Yeah. So of course, your, even if it's like, I think about it, it's like, oh, three, four years, it's not that much. Like those years matter a lot. Yeah, I mean, and I, in, in a way, knowing myself the way that I do now, I'm so thankful for that because I don't know how I would have gotten through high school if I had MySpace or Facebook. I actually remember having MySpace when I was at university um, because it was very important to pick the correct song for your page. <laughs> it was very socially important to have like the right vibe to your MySpace page. No, no, Dito that like Facebook, I, I got Facebook on my last year of high school. And I, I shudder to think how we have been growing up in high yeah. school with social media already. My, my apologies to anyone young enough. It's already hard enough being a teenager. Like, <laughs> I can't imagine kind of adding this other social element. Yeah. Yeah, we, we dodge a bullet there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So when in your life were you when then YouTube became a thing? I think it's a more appropriate question. 
Yeah. So when I graduated from my undergraduate degree, um, I was offered a job with the federal government with Australia's National Science Agency. So I had done an internship there in the last year of my program and there was a job available that my supervisor at the time encouraged me to apply for. And I actually wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I don't know how teenagers or people in their early 20s like have a clear idea of what they want to do with their life because I feel like I'm only just figuring it out now when I'm like in my mid 30s. I'm like, oh, I think I know what I want to do for the next 10 years. And it took me like more than 10 years to get to that point. I was offered this opportunity and it was In 2008, like at the beginning of 2008, when the whole world was starting to kind of melt down with the financial crisis and recessions and things like that. So I didn't want to turn down the opportunity to have a government job, which is quite well paid in Australia and has a lot of like union protections and steady salary and, you know, it's a really good job to have. So, yeah, so I was offered the job and I just took it and I started working mostly in science outreach where I would um, go out to schools and community centres and shopping centres and things like that and do science demonstrations. Some of them were general science education. Like we did a lot of really fun stuff, actually. We did like liquid nitrogen shows and we used um, all kinds of like chemicals to do chemical reaction shows and use dry ice. And we kind of had all these like fun science tools that you probably remember from going to a science museum when you were a kid, right? So we did a lot of that stuff, but we also did a lot of communication work around the research that the agency was doing. So we had these kind of big messages around the environment or resources and mining and whatever it may be. Like we had um, a lot of different things that we did. Um, So when I was doing that, I was out on the road a lot. Like we got given a ute, we call it in Australia, which is like a pickup truck um, where we would put all of our equipment in the back and we would travel around. I was based in Sydney, but we would travel all around the state of New South Wales. And when I was out on the road, we had to spend a lot of nights just in like random hotels by ourselves. But also a lot of things went wrong with our equipment that we had. And I had to fix a lot of things just using like duct tape and glue from your local hardware store out in the country. So that was when I actually started using the internet more actually like I think YouTube was part of that but it was also just like blogs and other websites like I hadn't been a big internet user before that point but all of a sudden I needed information that was hard to find in other places and I was by myself so that kind of drew me towards the internet at large. Wow how did doing that sort of work physically and having to literally travel around the country doing this sort of thing lead to eventually you pitching an idea for an internet show? Like what happened in that interim? So many things. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out the the best way to um, to frame it. But basically, I so I was doing that work in, um, in New South Wales and then I had another opportunity to move to a few different states in Australia, which was actually one of the benefits of working for for a federal agency is that there were always different centers in different capital cities that like,
like needed someone to come for a short-term job or a long-term or whatever it may be. So I always really wanted to travel when I was younger and that was a way that I could kind of see the country and live in different places and stuff like that. So um, I lived in the Northern Territory in Australia for a while and I lived in Queensland, like North Queensland as well on the Great Barrier Reef. And it was when I was up there that I became really interested in photography. I was always very interested in like cameras and different things, but I could just never afford to buy like a DSLR or something like that. Um, But when I was in North Queensland, I was traveling with these science education programs to all of these amazing places. Like we would take my work car, I'd be by myself, I'd take my work car on a barge that would travel from like the mainland of Australia out to islands in the Great Barrier Reef that have very small communities, a lot of Aboriginal communities, and I would take these education programs to those places. So when I was out there, it was just so beautiful that I started to document it. So I finally bought a camera. I started to take a lot of photos, short videos, that kind of thing. I was really just kind of experimenting with it. And I started a blog about just what it was like traveling around as like a one woman science show, essentially. Um, And because I was young and kind of didn't, I guess, fully understand how organizations work, the media team of like the PR and media team of the agency reached out to me and they were like, hey, we saw your blog. And I was like terrified. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to lose my job. I was like writing about, you know, my life traveling around with these science programs and like releasing, just publishing photos of like children at the school doing experiments and stuff like that. And I thought I was in trouble, but they were like, oh, we love it. Like you have such a funny way of writing and we'd love your photos and things like that. Would you be interested in working with us more closely? And I was just like, okay, cool. And all of a sudden I was doing radio interviews and they were using a lot of my photos in official capacity, like on their website and in press releases and and things like that. So that was kind of the start of my media career in a way. Wow. Hearing through your story, I kept thinking to myself, like, gosh, the the world before smartphones was just so different. Like even we all have gotten so used to the idea of being able to document everything with perfect clarity that even like for you and I, again, like smartphones are relatively new thing in the Mm -hmm. sense that I got my first smartphone when I was like 21 or something. Yeah. And but like the world before that was extremely more complex to do anything media related. Like we we, we tend to underestimate how how easier that I (laughs) until until I just heard your story, I I kind of had completely forgotten for a moment just how complicated it used to be, even for myself. I know. So I, I was always kind of interested in media and having this blog and uploading photos and short video clips of my travels and and talking about the community and the programs and things like that was I guess one of my first like online communication exercises. And um, what happened after that is I developed quite a good relationship with the people who worked in media relations at the agency and a position opened up. I think someone went on maternity leave, which um, in Australia is like a year. So someone in their team was out for a year and they contacted me and said, would you like to come on board and work as a, a media advisor? And it was something that I was definitely interested in 
And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. So I moved from North Queensland back to Sydney, where it all started. Um, And I started working in the media team at the science agency. And I would say that was where things really started to solidify for me in terms of my career working with video and in science communication. So I did that job for just over two years and I did my master's degree part time on the side which um, I would never recommend to anyone because it's such hard work. Like you just don't have a life, you know, you're just working full time and then you go home and you're studying and doing assignments and research and, and all the stuff I had to do as part of the degree. The one thing that made that possible is the work life balance that exists in Australia compared to, I mean, I live in the US now, so I just kind of like am constantly comparing Australia and the US and it's very different. (laughs) Um, But in my job, I I wasn't allowed to work more than 36 hours a week. It was like a unionized position. So um, when I came home, I got home from work at like 5pm and I would do a couple of hours of, of uni work and, you know, then eat and do whatever else I needed to do. Wow. In a way, on those days, being a blogger was the the hot new thing to do online. Oh, yeah. I remember when I was working in this job, like my colleagues were fantastic. My boss was fantastic. Like I loved it. But I started to meet more creatives, more people who were working in photography and video and, and different types of graphic design and everything, because all of a sudden I was in this media world. And All I wanted to do was to be a science blogger. Like that was my big goal at the time. Even though I had this fantastic job with great colleagues, really good income, I was like, I just want to be a blogger. (laughs) And I think about that so much now where I'm like, that was my goal. Yeah, no, for a lot of people online back then, being a blogger was like how people talk today about being a streamer or being a YouTuber. Yeah, It it was the big internet fame job thing where you could do interesting stuff all day around. Mm -hmm. That means that you got an interesting opportunity to just see this entire structure of media evolve around you from the, yeah. from the very start. So so what happened next? How how I, I want to know just how eventually video got involved into all of this. Not even YouTube, just video in general. Yeah, yeah. Well I I have a good a good story about this. So when I was working in the media team, there was one guy there who was a video producer and he had been with the science agency for like 30 years or something like that. Uh, He was a real veteran documentary filmmaker. Wow. And when you go into a lot of these government organizations, I think NASA is a great example of this, where they have had a video unit since the dawn of video. And you have all of this really old footage and archival footage of scientists working in 1960 and all this kind of stuff. Um, And we had these video archives of stuff that was on tape that was like 40 years old that nobody had really done anything with. So working with him, I started to digitize some of that. And some of it was so funny. Like there was a 22 minute film about a kangaroo giving birth (laughs) like graphic it's so graphic like you see the little jelly bean thing come out like close up of the kangaroo's private parts and it's crawling up and going into the pouch and everything and it's like 
it's like gross but weirdly beautiful when you consider <laughs> that that is that is the dawn of life, right? Um, and I was just kind of getting into YouTube a couple of years earlier. So I would say in like 2008, 2009, I started to watch a lot of YouTube. There was this one channel that I loved that was called RSA Animate. And they had these like very early kind of whiteboard animations of things. Um, and so I, so I watched that a lot. And then that was when TED Talks were like the coolest thing that existed. So I started to watch a lot of TED Talks as well. And so I did kind of had that context. And I was like, I think these videos would really crush it on YouTube. So I put a proposal in to my boss and we had to start a YouTube channel for the science agency, which is really steeped in a lot of bureaucratic processes. Like we had to get approval from the like CEO, basically the chief of the organization to do so. And I had to have this whole like business plan and everything. So it's really a lot of work. It's not just like signing up with an email address. You know, we had to have like a whole case that we put forward to do this. And we started uploading some of these old clips and the one of the kangaroo being born got a million views. <laughs> you uploaded that one to YouTube. It's so gross and I wow. love it so much. And when I'm telling, I do a lot of um, public talks and when I'm talking about my, you know, origin story, I show a gif of the the moment that the kangaroo is born. It's like I have it up on a huge screen and like auditoriums and stuff like that um, because it just, you know, makes me laugh <laughs> that I can fall so many people to watch this and mostly Americans like I only really show it to Americans that I can like force an audience of Americans to watch a kangaroo being born (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry it's just that one that is something that will be very difficult to float into modern YouTube so I just find it fascinating And, and second, the whole idea of here's our Australian expert, here's a kangaroo giving birth. It's like it's like the joke writes itself. It's impressive. Oh, it does. It's so funny. But most of the time, people are just so like confused or taken aback that they don't laugh, and I'm just the one who ends up laughing on stage, which is which is great. That's what I I always <laughs> want my style of humor to be. Um, so things kind of evolved from there where I started cutting up these old clips and putting these archival clips on YouTube. And then the other thing was I started interviewing scientists to include in our media releases because what a lot of publications were doing was embedding clips from YouTube onto their websites. So as part of our media releases, I started interviewing people and cutting up these little interview clips and giving them to media essentially so they could embed them online. So that was kind of the dawn of my experience with YouTube. Okay. Wow. If I may comment, that is mm-hmm. having an eye for opportunity because wow, there was <laughs> no freaking way to know back then that YouTube is like, oh, this YouTube thing, maybe we should start mm-hmm. uploading videos there. Like like today's kind of a given. Exactly. Like there were so many universities trying to to even make a presence in YouTube. But having mm-hmm. that vision back then, wow. That, that's a tremendous amount of, of foresight. Oof. Well, I, I will say that I'm sure, I mean, I always do this. I always try to like downplay my achievements, but I'm sure that other people thought about it or suggested it and they just weren't allowed. But I was in this environment where my manager wanted to push boundaries. My colleagues were so encouraging and I was just kind of in this perfect environment to do weird shit like that. And I think that when you surround yourself with 
really encouraging people, you can do cool things like that. Definitely. When you're making the interviews of the different scientists, like you were not on camera. You were like producing the things from... Yeah, yeah, I, I was I was off camera. So I will say that I started to go to a lot of conferences when I was in this job. And I went to this one science communication conference in Sydney and there was a video panel. So I went to the video panel because, you know, I've just started my little YouTube experiment with my kangaroo clips and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and there were a couple of different people people on the panel, video producers and stuff. And there was this one guy who had started a YouTube channel maybe six months earlier or a year earlier. He had 10,000 subscribers and his YouTube channel was called Veritasium. A question I get asked surprisingly often is, is Veritasium a real element? Nope. I made it up. I met Derek at this conference, Derek who, Marlow, who does Veritasium, and he had just finished his PhD in education at the University of Sydney. And we became friends and he was the first person I'd ever met who worked for himself, which might give you some idea of like the background that I came from, where you really had to have a job. Everyone I knew had a job for a company, right. you know? Um, and at that point, the YouTube Partner Program had probably started like a year or two years earlier, and he was making money from YouTube. And he told me this, and I was just like, what? Like, I was just couldn't believe it. And as we became friends, like, I soon realized that he slept in until like 11 a.m. every day, and he seemed to be doing well. And it was my first kind of exposure to someone who was a creative freelancer for starters, but then someone who was also making a living off YouTube. So that was kind of a bit of a opportunity for me. Like, as, as you have mentioned, I always see these little opportunities in yes. things. And I, I think that's like a good way to be. But I saw that and he introduced me to a couple of other channels like Minute Physics and Vsauce. And I was kind of watching a lot of these and I was like, I could do that. And then I did. Okay. So first, <laughs> a, a lot to, to, to explore there. Uh, it's interesting that you had already the opportunity to meet, like all of these names that you mentioned are like, uh, for lack of a better term, legendary in modern YouTube, but because, yeah, you know, yeah. it has been like a decade and mm -hmm. like they have done, everyone has done so many things in in yeah. those years, but it's, it must have been so interesting being in the middle of it and, and seeing these things happen. But okay. I'll also, second comment, very mm -hmm. interesting time when the appeal of being a YouTuber is that you can sleep in late because that, that will be very low in my current list of perks. <laughs> That's so, that is so funny though, because I... I guess I craved flexibility yes. at that time. And it is so ironic because now that I have complete flexibility in my life, I crave routine. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> so think we all do. I, yeah, so it was funny. But I mean, I had to, as I had mentioned, I um, only worked 37 hours a week. The lights went out in the office at 6 p.m. So if you wanted to stay after, you had to kind of like put in a notice to security to say that you were staying late. Like there was a lot of structure around my workplace and you had very set hours. Like you would work from, I think my, my boss worked from eight until 
3.30 every single day. Like imagine finishing work at 3.30 p.m. Like it's something that I kind of contemplate because I'm also not a morning person. So I tried to push my hours back as late as possible and I think I worked from 9.30 until 5, except I would still like most days arrive at work closer to 10 o'clock and then stay until 6, you know. So, yeah, I was just always kind of bad at getting to work. It's not something that I've ever excelled in in any job that I've had. So just the idea of being able to sleep in like it was it's just like such a dumb thing when you think about it but it was like so appealing to me yeah no it's just (laughs) i want to have more work (laughs) it's it's beautiful (laughs) so okay these these people vsauce and baritasium Mm -hmm. they were already doing more either on camera stuff or more personality based stuff where people were listening to the creator behind the thing and identifying with the creator was this an inspiration to you to get like in front of the camera so to speak and start having your voice heard i would say that they were all inspiring to me of examples of possibilities of science communication like my experience even through my master's degree and my work experience like at this point I had been working for the government for almost six years and I had just never seen anything like that I suppose like I it hadn't seemed real I mean you can watch this RSA animate channel which is whiteboard animations and watch TED talks and stuff but all of a sudden there were just normal people who I had met who were making YouTube work as a career. And that was really appealing. I went to VidCon for the first time in 2013. I didn't really know about it until 2012. But then when I had heard about the conference, we got a professional and personal development budget at work every year. And in 2013, I was like, I want to go to VidCon. So here I am, like Australian government employee going to Los Angeles as my professional development and going to this conference. And I think about it often when I go to VidCon now because I was so excited to go um, in the way that like I don't feel now because I've been so many times and it's just like I don't know conferences are kind of weird and I don't get as much out of them anymore but I was so excited and I went to so many sessions like as many sessions as I could and I took notes because I had to write a report when I got back to Australia about VidCon like imagine writing a government report about VidCon it's so weird it's like a lot of it is just like screaming teenagers you know but I I had a really good time there I think I met Destin from Smarter Every Day and Vi Hart as well, I believe. Like the whole kind of original EduTuber crew was there. And I also met Joe Hansen and a handful of people from PBS Digital Studios, which had just started that year, basically. Hey, smart people, Joe here. I was looking at my calendar recently and two questions popped into my head. One, why are lammies and jammies so stinking cute? And two, why are weeks a thing? And I was talking to them and I told them about the channel that I managed, which was this government channel with all of these like weird animal videos on it. And I said to them, like, I'm thinking about starting my own channel. And they told me a little bit about PBS Digital Studios and how they were really looking to reach a younger audience as a public broadcaster. And they were looking 
to do that in a way that they could. I mean, public broadcasting budgets are not very large. They were kind of looking for someone who could host and produce and edit videos and like start a channel that could be part of PBS Digital Studios. And they were like, yeah, let's keep in touch. So I went back and I was like pretty motivated by that because I mean, they're a huge brand name in science and education. And I started my channel. I <laughs> I remember the origin of it because I actually didn't want to be on camera. So I was trying to figure out how I could do like animation or something like that, but I had zero animation skills at all. So I was kind of like watching different YouTube videos and stuff. And I had this idea where I would do paper stop motion. And if you know anything about stop motion, you'll recognize how terrible my first videos were. <laughs> but I think that every YouTuber goes through this where your first videos are so bad, but you just didn't have the experience to realize that they were bad. And it's a blessing because otherwise you would have just stopped. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But I had, a, I did a lot of things where like I would cut stuff out of paper like I remember my first video I had this airplane and I cut this airplane out of paper cut a few little backdrop things and I was like moving the piece of paper along with my hand it's some real like toddler shit where <laughs> you're like making art and crafts with your kid you know um but I narrated it over the top did voiceover um and I mean the script writing was a skill set that I already had like I was already doing a lot of science writing and stuff like that um and I had done some media work I was doing a lot of radio interviews at that point and some breakfast tv interviews for the science agency so I was kind of like you know doing the voiceover but then the visuals were like so dodgy they were quite bad but they kept improving bit by bit. Like I started, I kept spending more time like cutting things out and doing these paper things. And I uploaded my first video in November of 2013, which is, I guess, three months after I got back from VidCon. And it did pretty well. Better than you expected. I had zero expectations. Hmm. I uploaded it. And I went out and had coffee with my mum. And I was like, I started a YouTube channel today. And she was like, oh, cool. And we chatted about it a little bit. And she was very excited about it. And she's like, there's so much stuff you could talk about with psychology. And I was like, I know. And that was kind of the first person that I told about my YouTube channel, actually. And I remember it because I like remember the cafe we were at was around the corner from my apartment and everything. Um, and then I had uploaded six more episodes. And... The, I think, seventh episode that I uploaded was on sleep deprivation. And I had uploaded it just before I was leaving for a weekend to go to a friend's wedding. So it was like a Friday night and I published it and I got the train to Newcastle, which is about three or four hours north of Sydney. And I remember like I got to my hotel, I was kind of unpacking, getting changed. And I was like, oh, I wonder how that's going. And I looked at it and it had like 300,000 views. Wow. And I was like, what the fuck? Like my other videos, I think one of them maybe got like 10 or 20,000, but that was kind of the most that I had received. And this had been featured on the YouTube homepage, which if ah. you remember, like, you know, the old YouTube, whoever curated the homepage um, had featured my video and it had just led to this influx of views and subscribers. And I was like, what is happening? Yeah, before the days we had a, an algorithm the, the key to virality in YouTube was a human watching something that could yes. power. Yes, 
Yes. There was not like an influx of infinite content that says mm-hmm. that it's like a human could sort through everything being uploaded and then pick up something that was really like a lot of people that we know, like even in our social circle that are like old school YouTube, mm. they got the start because they got featured once in the homepage. I know. Yeah. And the same thing happened to me. And I think, to be honest, it was because I had been to VidCon. I had been to some sessions. At the time, they had this thing called the educational whitelist, where they had basically like a pre-approved list of educational channels they liked. And there was this form, web form that you could fill out to be considered for it. So I had done all of those things. So I think that when you see success like this, you kind of forget the little steps that people yes. take to put themselves in the position to like be awarded that success in a way. Um, so I had like, you know, I'd flown overseas. I, at some at my own expense, I had, you know, done these six videos. I had been like emailing people who I met from YouTube with my new releases and stuff. Like I had been doing a lot of like lasts when I released new videos and I would never do that now like I'd be so embarrassed to email someone I barely knew when I release a new video but I was like I was so excited about my channel at the time and I was also not as worldly I suppose where I would just like meet someone from YouTube get their business card and then just send them an email every single time I uploaded a video oh but it worked it was it it was a smaller world back then and it worked it it was it was and um, yeah, and they they were excited about it. And then things kind of went from there. Like I reached back out to PBS um, and they were quite excited by the numbers on my channel. Like I remember when I had, when my channel had 24,000 views, I had 6,000 subscribers, which means that every like, oh my God, I can't even do simple maths anymore. Every fourth person who had watched my channel had subscribed. That's a tremendously good attachment Isn't that crazy? Yes. Yeah. And then, I mean, beyond that, obviously that kind of dropped off. But then when I started to get like tens of thousands of views on videos and then I had this big video, um, all of a sudden I had like 30,000 subscribers and I'd only been doing my channel for six months and this was kind of like in the first half of 2014 which crazy numbers back then Mm -hmm. yeah and and pbs were really interested so i um had pitched them on doing a season of braincraft for pbs and something that i will say in terms of like seeing opportunity but also putting yourself in the place where you can be considered for that is that I had emailed them and we were kind of emailing back and forth and there was another conference that I was interested in going to and this was in February of 2014 and it was called Science Online and it was in North Carolina and it was basically a meetup for bloggers, for science bloggers, (laughs) which was my dream, remember? So Mm -hmm. I was like, I really want to go to Science Online and I was emailing with PBS and things had kind of stalled. And I was like, you know, I'm actually coming to Washington, D.C. in like six weeks. Can I, can I meet with you in person to, to pitch this as a pitch meeting? And they were like, yeah, sure. And then I was like, well, fuck, I've got to book some airfares to Washington, D.C. Like I, I just was like in Australia in my job and did definitely did not have a trip planned. Um, but when they agreed to the meeting, I was like, OK, I'm going to take take some annual leave. So like I took um, holidays for I think two and a half or three weeks which was all that I have and I went to this conference in um, uh, North Carolina and then I went to 
Arlington, Virginia, actually, which is the headquarters of PBS, and I pitched them my show, and then I flew back to Australia and went back to work on Monday. Oh, um, crazy! Yeah, wow. <laughs> now that is a, a, an adventurous period of your life. Oof. Yeah, it was. I think when I think back on it now, um, yeah, it was. I don't know. It was. Um, I guess I was like very ambitious and I was kind of looking for opportunities and I saw this as something that was like within my grasp. And if it didn't work out, like, I, I guess it didn't matter in, in a lot of senses. Like I already had a job. I was just taking holiday leave and I went to North Carolina and went to this conference and met some awesome people. And I had always had this dream of living in New York City. So after I went to the conference, I came to New York went to DC and just kind of stayed in New York for a week and then like went back to work. So it could, like, if nothing had happened from it, now I could just like glaze it over as a holiday that I took. However, things went better than expected, <laughs> didn't they? However, they did. And um, PBS really liked the pitch. They were looking for new shows. It was really a place of me being in the right place at the right time, to be honest, where they were looking for someone like me. I was looking for a bit of a change. Like I'd been working for the government for six years at this point and it was an excellent job and I really loved the agency, except I didn't want to be a civil servant for my whole life. I just really wanted to like try something new and I was still relatively young. I think I was like maybe 27 at that point. So you're kind of at that age where like you've had a little bit of a career, but you're still like young-ish where it kind of doesn't matter if you fail. Like you could go and do something completely random for three years and then come back and you're still only 30 years old. You know, like it's kind of a good time. Yeah, so I got offered this contract and I was like, great, I'm going to move to New York City. <laughs> so easy. <laughs> With my Labradoodle. Well, it, it's a good thing. It's a good, it's yeah. a good thing you brought them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my god! It just dawned on me that the brain craft is like comes from paper craft, and it's like it's a reference mm. lost to the past that I can't believe I didn't put it together. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> like art and craft. Yeah. No, it's funny. It's funny because um, one of my friends last year phoned me when he was really high and he was like, Vanessa, what's your brain craft? And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, I imagine mine would be like a van, like an ice cream truck that you would drive around and that would be the craft <laughs> that I would travel. He was thinking of it as in like a hovercraft or a watercraft or, you know, like a, like a vehicle. <laughs> and he sent me this drawing that he did on a post-it note of like a, a brain car with like him inside of it. And I'm like, this is hilarious. And you're so stoned right now. <laughs> But I'm telling you this because I I chose the name Braincraft because it was very logical at the time, but I still really like it because I think that it has a good um, flexibility to fit into all these different areas, like you're crafting your brain to be better or you're you're moving through life inside your brain craft. You know, it has a lot of different meanings. Yeah, absolutely. What happened next? How did your life shape now that you were being, I guess, a full-time creator? Under PBS, like how did that change your life? Basically, um, it changed quite a lot, obviously, because I, I, the main thing was that I was moving from this government job that I had in Sydney that had a lot of structure around it to being 
a freelancer, essentially. Like I wasn't an employee of PBS, so I was contracted to produce 45 YouTube episodes in one year. Um, And this was a different era of YouTube where they were three-minute episodes. Like now people's YouTube videos are like 12 minutes and a small work of art, whereas (laughs) in in 2014 they were a lot less effort um, and a lot shorter basically. So um, all of a sudden I had to make a YouTube video basically every week all by myself. Like I didn't have budget or anything for other people. Like what they had given me was really just enough for one person and to like buy a camera and that was it. Um, So I moved to Brooklyn and I moved in with two other women in a three-bedroom apartment and my bedroom became my studio as well. So like I filmed stuff in there. PBS really wanted me to do more on camera. At that point I had kind of shied away from being on camera, Um, but they really wanted me to be on camera. So I started filming myself against my like exposed brick wall in my crumbling Brooklyn apartment. And um, yeah, it was like a new era of Braincraft. But I will say that my life, like my routine kind of reverted back to when I was a student where I had had this structure around my job for the past six years and all of a sudden I could sleep until 11 a.m. So what I did was I would just like work until three in the morning or four in the morning or something and like sleep late and take naps all the time. And I had the flexibility and the freedom that I was craving for, but I was actually more tired than I had ever been in my whole life, which is a complete irony where I was sleeping more than I used to, except my my routine was just fucked, to put it honestly. <laughs> did you ever manage to fix it? I did, but it took me many years because I actually like couldn't realize what was wrong, where I was getting what seems like an adequate amount of sleep and I was having a lot of fun. Like I was, you know, it was like a summer in Brooklyn and I was single and I was just like going out and getting drinks with new friends and all that kind of stuff all the time. So it was like one of the funnest summers of my life, Um, except I just like felt like shit. And I like put on the obligatory like 10 pounds that people put on when they move to America because I was just like drinking beer and eating hamburgers every single night, you know, and I had always been a very healthy person and very regimented, but all of a sudden I was just like, it was like I was on vacation all the time. As a creator with a very long and interesting set of experiences through that, what Mm. lessons did you learn with this newfound liberty? And I'm asking this partially out of self-interest, trying to look (laughs) for things that I could learn because my routine ain't perfect. Yeah, well, uh, it was interesting because I had to start putting a lot of structures in place in my life. Like I I had to start limiting myself to only drink a couple of nights a week to try to have more of a routine because as I started to read into things, I started to find out what like sleep hygiene is, for example, which is this like set of mostly environmental practices that you can take to try to improve the quality of your sleep. So I started coming across all of this stuff that 
I didn't previously know existed. And in a lot of ways, like my my life as a new American who was self-employed was very different because I had never experienced stress like that before. Like when you live in a country like Australia, I mean, if if for a sudden like I was unemployed or I got kicked out of my apartment or whatever it may be, you have all of these safety nets. Like you have your family that live in the same city as you. You have the government, which would give you a pension if you're unemployed. You know, but like if, if something happened with my health, I would be able to get free healthcare. But all of a sudden, like I'm just like a poor woman in America because like what the money that I was making on my contract like wasn't amazing. I didn't have health insurance. Like I all of a sudden had to pay a shitload of taxes and I was just kind of like what's happening and because I wasn't sleeping or I didn't have like the best routine I wasn't coping with stress very well so like all of a sudden I had this like very fun summer and this awesome like first six months in America and then America like caught up with me if that makes sense and I had this big like reckoning where I was just kind of like I had to get, I'd start paying like $600 a month for health insurance and I had to start like prepaying all of my taxes and the, it, like the fun just got sucked out of my life very quickly. <laughs> Did you ever got it back? I didn't answer your question. I didn't give you I didn't give you any good strategies. I I did, but I think that as you grow older and you become aware of more responsibility or you take on more responsibility in your life, you can never go back to the fun that you used to have when you when you were just oblivious. Looking at it, at it that way and Looking at the fact that, as you mentioned, that, that even at the start of this interview, that mm. you never quite feel like you're a quote-unquote YouTuber because you always mm-hmm. had this barrier of separation of working through like a mm-hmm. different entity. How do you feel when you watch like modern YouTube, when you have these people sort of rising to create certain types of content from completely organic means and often from their bathrooms? And I say this as I realize that I'm recording this on my bathroom. That's an accident. (laughs) What sort of sensation does the changes the media has experienced give you? I think it makes me excited for the future for sure like I'm very inspired by young people who can make amazing content from their bedroom or from their parents basement I wouldn't be completely honest with you if I didn't say that I have like a touch of jealousy for people who do that because they're by all of the kind of metrics that you can use to measure a YouTube channel, they're all more more successful than I am. And I kind of feel like I have been at university for six years and I have worked for the federal government for six years and I've had all these contracts with like big corporations and I can only get like thirty or 40,000 views on one of my videos, you know, like that. I think that's why I don't identify myself as a YouTuber because it makes me feel unsuccessful. Interesting. Well, it's, yeah. it's, it sounds like a balancing game between a measure of stability and mm-hmm. absolute complete chaos, which is what the YouTube yeah. life can be sometimes. Yeah, and it's interesting because when you see people who are making amazing content and they're really up and coming, 
you're almost waiting for their burnout video. Like, I don't know when the burnout craze began. It was probably in like 2015. Like all of a sudden everyone was burnt out. And I mean, I, I, I felt that as well, um, mostly because I had this contract where I had to make 40 or 45 videos a year. Um, and I was just always under this pressure to just like make videos, make videos. And I think a lot of YouTubers feel that in terms of seeing growth on their channel, like they just always need to put the next thing out. And for me, it was kind of that, but it was also like I had to deliver this thing contractually as well. So I had this like second level of obligation where PBS were like a client of mine and I had to like keep them happy and keep delivering these episodes. Yes, yes, absolutely. I <laughs> I laughed it a little bit too hard at that, but it's when I started, I was also one of the people being like, wow, people make, it's almost like a routine making this burnout videos. And then like mm -hmm. five years later, like I'm six years into YouTube <laughs> and it's like, oh, a any new create any new upcoming creator that I managed to talk to, the first thing that I tell them is like, watch out for your work routine because you're gonna hit that. Yeah, it happens no matter what you do. Like you have to be ready for it. <laughs> I know, I know. I I will say for me, like it really happened when I just started doing too much. So in mm. my first two years that I was working with PBS, they were really the biggest years for growth on my channel and all I was doing was making YouTube videos for them and then it kind of got to this point where I started to have other opportunities because I had a YouTube channel with a couple of hundred thousand subscribers like all of a sudden people wanted me to like host other things and apply for things and there were just kind of these other opportunities so I received funding to make a full-length documentary on gene editing on CRISPR-Cas9, which actually won a Nobel Prize two days ago. Um, oh, that is the, right. Two, yeah, right. Yeah, yes. the two women um, who basically developed the technique um, both shared the Nobel Prize for chemistry. Um, so I, I received this funding to make a documentary on the ethics of designer DNA, basically, and travelled around the world to do this. We, we filmed in South Korea and Sweden and all around Australia and the US, and it was on a very tight budget. And and while I was producing and hosting that and filming that documentary in like every single time zone, I also had to make a weekly video for PBS. So I had, oh my God. I had um, banked some, I had kind of hired some people to help me and I had made a whole bunch of them um, and bulk shot them. And then we were, I was releasing them. Like I remember being in this Airbnb in Stockholm after shooting for 12 days and like releasing a YouTube video. Um, and that kind of became the norm for me for a little while because I did the documentary and then I did a TV show in Australia and I was just starting to do all this other media work. But as a result, my YouTube channel started suffering a bit. And then I was also just releasing a lot of like experimental content on my channel, which was at the same time as an algorithm change. And I released this 45 minute documentary on my channel and after that like it just kind of went downhill like it was growing really well until that point and then it just like flatlined and I was just kind of like oh man what have I done <laughs> <laughs> oh the, the the joy of being a content creator Oh yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think part of the experience of being a content creator is that you never quite know 
why things have happened on your channel. Like you can speculate until the end of time about algorithm changes and audience churn and all these different things, except a lot of it you will just never understand because you can't collect the type of data that tells you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thinking about how you mentioned how Basically, you were riding the wave of a mm -hmm. lot of organizations looking to use YouTube to uh, get to a younger audience. I couldn't yeah. help but think about how some of that is happening uh, now, nowadays, in a different way. And I wanted to get your opinion on that. I'm talking about um, there are some organizations that are opening pretty interesting TikTok accounts, like mm -hmm. the Washington Post or, or the, yeah. the Money Podcast. That are th their accounts are meme fests, but are highly educational meme fests. Mm -hmm. And and I can't help but think that this is the 2020 version of basically that wave that you were writing at that time. So are, are you aware of this thing happening? What's your thoughts on it? Yeah, actually, um, my old manager from PBS started the Washington Post TikTok account. So You're it's kidding. really funny that wow. you use that as an example. Yeah, yeah, um, she was behind that. So I think there is definitely a similarity there. I know that the Washington Post were also using Twitch to mm -hmm. um, do streams and things like that as well. So, yeah, I, I think that whenever there is a piece of technology that is successful in reaching a new audience, brands will just want to use it immediately. And TikTok has definitely been the hot new thing of this year, but there's always this competition for innovation in a way with different brands where they just need to reach new audiences. I mean, if you think about brands like Washington Post and the and PBS, like their viewership and their readership is, sorry to be macabre, but literally dying <laughs> because they're so old. Like PBS's demographic is like above, is like 70 and older, you know, and the Washington Post um, traditionally has an older demo. So for brands and organizations like that to survive, like they need to develop new audience. And then for other brands, which are more like commercial in nature, they need new um, opportunities to like build brand trust and to reach new audience and stuff like that. So I think it will always be a thing. And oh my God, I just can't even imagine what is next after TikTok. We, we gotta get ready to get on that early. <laughs> I know, <laughs> I'm scared. <laughs> One last question. Mm -hmm. So if anyone who is rising now to the challenge of sign communication in YouTube, TikTok, or whatever mm -hmm. new platform it may be, and find inspiration in your work as it is today, what will be your experienced advice that you will give them? Oh, that is a really good question. It's kind of hard to have a coherent answer off the top of my head, but I would say find your niche because Something that I did, which a lot of people do, is I looked to creators who were already on the platform and tried to not necessarily like mimic their style, but took a lot of like heavy cues, right? Like a lot of my early videos are inspired a lot by Vsauce and ASAP Science. And then ASAP Science, when it first started, was heavily influenced by minute physics and you know like there's all these kind of like derivative styles that happen and I have had people like big 
YouTube creators that you now know who actively tried to make a video that was a copy of my one of my videos because they thought that I would be <laughs> like flattered by that and they sent it to me and I was like what the fuck are you doing like make your own shit like, like <laughs> it was just so strange and I think that there's not enough originality online and I think you see that on YouTube where I feel like every few weeks there's another science channel that has like stock footage and voiceovers and it's about like the mystery of the train tracks outside of New York (laughs) City or something. I'm just kind of like oh my god what is this like the Burger King lettuce voice do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah and and that um Uh, like disappoints me in a way because I think that the internet is such a creative place and there is such creativity on YouTube except when it comes to certain genres people just tend to kind of mimic what is popular and when I started doing my paper cutouts when I first started my channel like that was super different and weird and no one else was doing anything like that probably because it looked bad but also because people didn't have the patience so I would really challenge people to find what is unique about them, about their voice, but also about their style. Because when you think about style and filmmaking, people who have a very unique style like Casey Neistat or Matt Diavella, like they break through because people are excited to see something that is fresh. So I would just really challenge people to find their niche because whatever your experience is, like even if you are a theoretical physicist who has a whiteboard that you like to make drawings on, like you could do something that is wildly different from minute physics. I think you just need to like give yourself space to know that that could be successful. And everybody has a different perspective. Like even if you have the same degree as Michael Stevens, for example, like you have grown up in a different place. You are probably from a different culture, like bring that into your work, because I think that we just need to see more diversity, not just in people, but also in ideas and formats online. And then you're going to reach even more people and kind of get a message out there in different ways. That's a great answer. Thank you very much for that. Thank you very much. Thank you.